Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today is my last episode of 2021, and I think I've got a great one to end the year. Today I'll be talking with the great Harry Gregson Williams. You might know him from scores like the Shrek films, Mulan, Kingdom of Heaven, and most recently his work with Ridley Scott on The Last Duel and House of Gucci. Although it's a very quick interview, we're still able to cover his upcoming film for Disney Nature and both of those Ridley Scott films, which is an interesting dynamic just because of how different they all are. It really shows off his range. The last duel in particular, I found fantastic, both the score and the film itself. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this. And if you do, remember to leave a rating or review. I think now you might be able to do it on Spotify as well, so be sure to check that out. Now, sit back and enjoy. Harry, thank you so much for joining me. How have you been? Um, pretty good. Pretty good, thanks. Pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I know that you've had two films released in the last month and a half, two months, so is that, do you now have a chance to relax a little bit, or are you always in high gear? No, I'm pretty much in high gear. I'm, I'm uh, just finishing a score uh, for Disney Nature which is a, a branch of Disney that I really, really admire and like. You know, I think it's very good for their branding. You know, they do these nature films. Uh, they are these amazing wildlife filmmakers uh, from Bristol, England, somewhere in the southwest of England. They go and find an animal or a species and go film it for two, three years and, and make a story around it. A few years ago, I did Monkey Kingdom, some okay. monkey in Sri Lanka. Uh, about two, three years ago, I did Penguins. And everybody loves a penguin. There's nothing not like about penguins. Uh, uh, I'm I'm just finishing a score for Polar Bear, which is, as you can imagine, has a slightly different connotation to it. Has a slightly more serious tone to it, um, yeah. being that their their environment is melting. So I love these things because it 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 um, allows me to write a score that really tells a story. I mean, a lot of scores can do that, but this, these scores are, you know, I have you have these beautiful pictures. You have a narrator, then you've got the music, and those three things are going to tell the story. There's no dialogue, there's no talking. And actually, as one of the directors said to me on Penguins, penguins don't smile, they don't laugh. You're going to have to do a lot of the smiling for us. And in Polar Bears is, uh, is fairly similar in the respect that, you know, it's quite black and white. There's a lot of white on the screen. Uh, so the color's got to come from the music. Great. I mean, and, and so you already touched on it a bit of how because the, the nature of it is so different from an ordinary feature. Yeah. How does your compositional approach differ then? Mm, not really differ. Uh, when you're not battling sound effects and dialogue, which we are quite often, you know, take a movie like Gucci. It's, pretty, it's a pretty loud movie. A lot of songs flying around, a lot of interesting accents flying around. And uh, that's how the story unfolds. And musically, I had to duck and dive around that. Yeah, as I said, in, in, in a, a Disney nature, they're not really documentaries, they're little movies. Because hmm. uh, there's a story to be told here. But because there are no humans involved, there's no one chatting away on screen, music really does to have to do some of the heavy lifting, uh, which is really fun. And uh, for the first time, I think, ever on a score, I don't know, it seemed like film really wanted, needed, and would benefit from me starting at the beginning and writing the score in order, as it were, from the beginning to the end. And one really, really does that. In the last duel, I think, 
I did actually start with the first cue of the movie, and then I hopped to the end. In that movie, I think the reason I did that, my memory was that the duel actually split up. You know, we yeah. see the beginning, the preparations of the duel at the beginning of the movie, and we don't see what happens in the duel until the very end. So it seemed like common sense to have that flow going. But in this, yeah, in Polar Bear documentary, yeah, it seemed a really nice thing to own the story and develop the themes as I went. But often one will write themes and then start to look at places in the movie where that might, that might work, and how one ought to develop such themes, and how that should go. Uh, but on this occasion, I thought, mm, I'm going to start at the beginning and see where that takes me. And as I say, I'm very nearly at the end. Right, great. I hope it's been a good journey so far. I'm really good. Forward to hearing really, it. Really beautiful. Excellent. And and uh, since you let us right into it about the last duel, talking about technically starting at the beginning and then jumping at the end of that, and the creation and development of themes, you know, the way that that's that film is set up is you know very neatly structured to have themes yeah. for each of those three characters, each of the three intertwining storylines. Each of the three characters is is quite distinct in their personality, how they act. How did you then go from writing the initial cue to developing the themes that we hear throughout the film? Well, between Ridley and myself, we, we decided fairly early on that the film could benefit from vocals, having that texture, having that sound, uh, and not necessarily massed choir like, like I would have used in Kingdom of Heaven. I used a really huge choir. I don't know, over 100 people in the choir from Kingdom of Heaven. And so, you know, that's kind of a homogenous sound. Using a really small choir and soloists on top of that, featured on top of that, you tend to hear individual voices. And if, if you've ever sang in choirs or you've directed choirs as I have, both of those things, you know often when you're, you don't want voices to stick out. It needs to be a homogenous sound, rather like, say, a violin section. You, know, you might have 20 violins playing. You don't want to hear individual violins. You want to hear... A whole sound but we felt that in in this movie yeah, it might behoove us to, to look for a small choir i found this this um, eight-piece choir called watches eight in england who are very precise very accurate and in some instances i was able to uh, write eight part vocal music so that it was one person to a part that's quite rare if you think about it going back to that choir in kingdom of heaven i might have written four-part harmony which is quite usual satb soprano alto tenor bass and there might be 40 people on each part so to write uh, in a very different way, it has to be very precise, and pristine, uh, and intentional, a line for a voice. And on top of that, a really, really excellent couple of solos. Grace Davison is a wonderful soprano, active in England at the moment, and uh, much in demand. And she sings in a very unflowery way, a really beautiful, pure sound, very much vibrato. Uh, and that was a very direct sound that I wanted. And that gave us really Marguerite's theme is often sung, although it's orchestrated as well throughout the movie. I wanted to find a different voice of a vocal that would be less obvious, a bit more haunting, and in some cases unsettling. And I, I utilized this chap, Yeston Davis, who's a countertenor. So countertenor, as you're probably familiar, sings in the range of a soprano. So it's a man, it's always going to be a man, a countertenor. It's a male that's singing high. And I don't, when I say high, it's, we're not talking the Bee Gees here. We're not talking falsetto. It's a certain technique. I can't profess to know precisely how that's done. I know I can't sing in that pitch because uh, I've tried. But it's a very, it's quite a bracing sound. It's quite powerful, can be quite powerful. And there's a certain color to it that one doesn't find in a soprano voice. And I utilize this with some kind of atmospheric 
synths and other vocal textures around the Legree character. And that seemed to work really well for Ridley. When I played this for Ridley Scott, I liked it a lot. I wasn't quite sure who was doing what, how I was, what was generating the sound. So I used some glissando, vocal glissando moments and uh, kind of put them into my sequencer and had them flying about the speakers and, and it caused quite an unsettling, unusual sound. So that was, that was a bit of a hit with Ridley. He was like something he can't uh, put his finger on. He's like, what's that? What's that? You know, you're in business if he says that. Yeah, with, with the third character, as you say, the, 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 the three main characters in the last duel are very delineated. They're very specific, aren't they? With the way they act, their actions, what they believe, the truth that they believe. Oh, there goes the cuckoo clock. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, with, with, thematically, with the Karush character, with Matt Damon's character, I was able to, it's a, it's a more conventional theme for a soldier. You know, the guy's a, a warmonger. Uh, and good at it as well. And he turns out to be an arrogant bloke as well. He, he really believes in his, his own destiny and what, how he should come across to the people around him. So his theme is, is quite, it's a bit more expected, conventional in its architecture, it's a rising theme. The sort of thing that I might have written on many movies that I've, I've done involving a, you know, a guy who thinks he's a hero or ought to be a hero. The other two thematic pieces for Marguerite and for Legree were a bit more unusual, a bit more left of center. Um, but all of it rooted in a kind of medieval setting. I won't say that the music's medieval. It's not at all. It can't be if it's, <laughs> if it's me, but um, it should have an overtone of a believability that it could be the sort of music that they would be hearing at that time, 1380, I think. Yeah. Setting some of the music to Latin, some of the choral music to Latin, worked and because some of the settings are the environment that we're operating in is liturgical so there's clergy involved there's god and their belief in that so the latin mass was a really good source of text uh, but for marguerite's theme which would be secular very much secular it'd be something like a folk song or a lullaby that a mother might sing to her child that sort of thing and i found a, a text in you know the, 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 it turns out there were troubadours singing love songs it was, it was pretty prevalent at that time, 1380s, 1400s. So uh, I was able to look at uh, some, some of the uh, uh, people who were knocking that stuff out and, uh, and I pinched some of their text. I had to adjust it slightly, but uh, yeah, I used some of the text that I found, which is really useful. And that, that was French actually, yeah. Chanson d'amour, a lot of love songs, yeah. And so with putting all that together, like you said, it's not actually a period accurate score, but... Huh. I think it, it does enough to trick the audience into believing it. Yeah, I, don't, I hope there's no trickery involved, but it is, you know, if you use a consort of vials, which I did, they're very edgy. And they're, they're clearly, you know, not, I don't think you'd have to have an educated ear to, to feel that there's a, certain, there's a certain edginess and a slightly crude sound to the vial, uh, although a beauty in that, but it's, it's quite basic sound, not played with much vibrato. As you know, the, the bow is played underhand, as it were. It's not, not over the top like this, but under. These aren't completely accurate to the 1380s. I think the vials came a good hundred years after that. You'd have to fact check me there. Um, <laughs> but they're not, I don't think they were around in the 1380s. But if you, if, in my instance, bringing that, uh, a consort of vials, that sound into what ordinarily would be an orchestral setting, 
that does give it that sort of edge and the believability that this would be medieval times. So that, together with things that absolutely were of the time, wooden flutes, ethnic flutes, some, some pretty unfancy drums, which you whack pretty hard. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and this sort of, I don't know, this melting pot of, of, of sound is really what one goes after when one sets off on a score like this. There's no, no prizes for, for being completely authentic. You know, one needs any of the tools that one can find to be able to tell the story, not to tell the story that one wants to tell or amplify the story. Yeah, well, and that's what I find so interesting about it because setting the music aside, the film feels so grounded in that in that setting. And by deviating from the period-specific music, it could be really easy to end up with something that, with music that sounds a bit jarring or anachronistic. I mean, not maybe to the extent of like a Tangerine Dream fantasy oh. score or, or Ladyhawk, right. but something where it'll pull the audience out. And yeah. watching the film, you're you're just drawn in entirely. We, we don't want to be drawn out of the film, do we? We want to be pulled in. They're quite the reverse. We want to be pulled in. And, and there, there's a fine line, I think, we tried as composers, because uh, there's a couple of films that I've seen, screeners I've seen in the last week or two, where... Man, the score really pissed me off. Really spoiled bloody movie. I don't think I really want to say which movies, but uh, there's a couple by the same composer, actually. I was like, this is so over-intellectualized and it's so unnecessary. It's not my cup of tea at all. And it's spoiling the film. And why am I even thinking about this when I want to be watching and enjoying this movie? I shouldn't be. But uh, that's just me. What do you think? Well... I mean, I now I want to know what the films are, but I don't want to stir up. I don't want to stir up too much. I don't, want, I don't want to trash anybody. No, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I sometimes. I mean, I don't. I don't. Not suggesting for one moment that film music should be just some sort of white noise in the background and not noticed. You know, think think of some of the great recognizable scores of the last hundred years. You know, some Morricone or John Williams. These people, Hans Zimmer, they're noticeable. They're right there. They can be right in your face but not taking me out of the movie, yeah. not making me question, why are we listening to that string sliding here to the, I mean, I know why we are, I can, see, I, can, I can see the intellectual reasoning behind it, but that's not helping me pull me in. It's kind of pushing me away and making me think about why is that kind of nasty sound? Why does that have to be here? Yeah, that's, that's me. But I think, I think it's a lot of people. I think it's very common because look, that's, it, it is the fine line with film music where you don't wa- I mean, sometimes it works well, but you don't want to delegate it simply to background drones that oh. add another layer. But listen, there are the, the wait, let's, we should, um, yeah, we should, we should not celebrate scores that don't do that, but do do the right thing for us. I've, mm-hmm. I've, this one, Dickon Hinchcliffe, is that his name? Yeah. His name is a South African dude. There's one score he did, I really like the sound of that. I can't remember the film now. Just in the last few weeks, I've seen the movie. Um, oh yeah, it was um, it was the new film by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think it was The yeah. Lost Daughter, something like that. Right, and I yeah. really like that. Gosh, I like that film as well. Oh, I'd love to have done a film like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I really liked that, and I really like the use of music in that. Yeah, I liked Hans's score for Dune, but then I'm a sucker for things like that. <laughs> Those vocals, like <laughs> really oh, yeah. arresting vocal. It's like whoa, sent you back in your seat. But you see, for me, that, that doesn't push me away. That grabs me by the scruff of the neck and pulls me in. So I, I like that. It's, it's interesting you use that as an example because I've seen a lot of people say that that score in particular, because it 
can be so loud and powering yeah. that yeah. it pulled people out or it, it yeah. distracted it could, them. I, could, I can see why it might. It didn't for me. And it, it doesn't for me because I, I, I'm sure that all you can sense the cogs whirring in Hans's head, but I don't know. He's such, he's so masterful with storytelling and with how he places his music. The, the effect he was after was the effect it had on me, but I can see how it might not. So we're all, we're all different. You know, I, I remember hearing um, Shawshank Redemption for the first time, I think before I even dreamt of becoming a composer and thinking, whoa, pretty piano music on a film like this. I, I had no idea, really. And years later, yeah, I, obviously I got to meet Thomas Newman. He's done some, he's done some really profound yeah. things as well. Yeah, no, there's much, there's much to admire. But, you know, obviously being a film composer, I, there's much to be critical of as well. And I can sure I get my fair criticism too, fair share. But it's, it's, that's probably why we love it, because it is slightly contentious, isn't it? We're not all going to think the same thing about it, just like in any music. You know, is it the Beatles or is it the Rolling Stones? You know, are you one or the other? Do you have to be one or the other? In other words, is it Zimmer or John Winnie or whatever it is? Yeah. Right. Uh, or this flat or whoever. Yeah. But uh, I think that's what's that, that sort of variety and also the, the sort of unpredictability of it. One goes to a film thinking, oh, yeah, this has got this flat score. I'm probably going to like it. And then maybe you don't. Or going to a movie thinking, oh, this has got a Tommy Newman score. I know I'm going to like it. I think, hmm, not my favorite. Or whatever. These things do surprise you. But then that's going to the movies. That's what the movies do for us. Yeah. Well, and especially with film music where there is no one way to do it. There's no book. There, it's, it's only been around for, you know, 100, 110 years. Right. Any film, any score, any composer can push those boundaries and you never know when it's going to happen. Yeah. But I, 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 I'm really happy that um, you know, I, see, I see some really talented people who worked for me over the years, you know, because obviously, as you know, I, I started with Hans myself. Everybody's got to start somewhere. That was really fortunate I had to have been with him at the time that I was. I think of Dave Buckley, Stephen Barton, Steph Economou, Hallie Cawthry. These are all people who've assisted me who are really good composers in their own right. And I won't say in their own right now, they always were, but they were in a learning curve. But it's really it's gratifying to see them go on and do their own things and, and do what they should be doing. So I think that's the kind of cycle, isn't it? Without getting all Elton John about it, the cycle of life. <laughs> but I think it is. That's what goes around, comes around. And I think that's, uh, that's healthy as well. I think it's very healthy. It's, it's gratifying to see that when that, that occurs. It's very difficult to break into, break into, but it's not, it's not that difficult. To, I don't think it'd be that difficult to be a really, really good assistant to someone. So you're doing the work for that person or in any way underselling yourself. But what a great place to start. You know, so that you're, you're in the room with a Ridley Scott or a Ben Affleck or a someone, but you're not the full guy, not yet. You know, the boss is whoever the guy is. He's going to stand or fall by, by that. Uh, but to be in that, and I felt, felt that very much being with Hans that went in my first few years here in 95, for, 1995 for two or three years or whatever it was, and I assisted him on, on his movies. To be in the same room as Katzenberg, Tony Scott, you know, Hans did a... This is not Tony's best film by any means. Um, a movie De on it called The Fan. And, you know, that's where I really got to know Tony Scott. For whatever reason, I stopped wanting to score films for Tony or, or, or 
what Tony wanted to do. I don't know what happened there, but there was an opportunity. Yeah. It opened. So the door opened. Yeah, I guess I kind of pushed it down and ran through that door. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and then from that, you know, you had a, a, a great relationship, or at least you've, you've scored a lot of, you had scored a lot of films for Tony. Oh yeah, I had a great relationship with him. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. And I don't, I don't know the stories behind it, but led, I'm sure, in some way to working with Ridley. Oh yeah. Eight, ten years later in Kingdom of Heaven. Oh yes, absolutely. I think, I, I think um, after Hans and Ridley had all been very successful and done Gladiator, um, I don't know whether they just didn't want to get the band together again or what, what the hell went on there. But yeah, there was an opening on Kingdom of Heaven, and I know that uh, when Ridley asked me to do it, I thought it was a bit, a bit awkward at first because I, <laughs> I was really Tony's guy. And he kind of read my mind and said, so I've, I've spoken to Tom. He's like, as long as you, he can have you back to do Domino, I think it was, uh, which is ne his next one. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very sad that Tony's not with us anymore. Uh, yeah. But he left a profound effect on me. And, and, and I think everybody who he worked with was a lovely, sweet man. Obsessive, but sweet. <laughs> very respectful. And mm. Well, yeah, and I've, I've only heard great things and, and yeah. obviously so many people like his films as well so yeah. a great legacy to have left behind my only regret is this that when people discover that i've you know i worked on all these movies with tony scott from i don't know 1996 to the day he died like, oh man did you do true romance i'm like yeah. <laughs> so i joined the party just after that dang that's everybody's favorite tony scott movie just tell people you scored it and you know, no know better. yeah I'm sure Hans would feel good about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I feel very fortunate to have done, done quite a body of work with these Scott brothers. Uh, th this year to do two, two on, the, on the trot with, uh, with Ridley was very unusual. Uh, very unusual. You know, and we'll see where that goes. I know he's, he's about to start shooting Napoleon, but I don't know whether he'll ask me to do it. Well, let's, let's hope so. I mean, you've, both in more realistic films and in fantasy films, have a great wealth of experience of uh, of scores that are a bit more period specific yeah a bit more period specific <laughs> yeah, can be pretty specific out of thought yeah. yeah i don't know anything about it fingers crossed on that and then on house of gucci you'd mentioned to me last week when we talked briefly that although there's only maybe eight ten minutes of your actual score in it you had effectively done a full score at least a significant amount of music do you think that'll ever see the light of day or is it just stuck in harry's vault no not at all not really i think the uh you know i put together some sort of score suite that has all my mm. themes in it has the the best bits of the score but nothing bad happened it wasn't yeah. that ridley was throwing score out you know i joined the film and he didn't really want too much score he needed a film composer he had me we just finished the last year he wasn't quite sure there would be a few places he wanted me to try score a few places i tried score and he was like, you know what? I, don't, I really don't think we need it. I don't think we need score here. So I put that aside. There are a few places clearly we did need score, so I concentrated on those. Uh, probably the longest single piece of music I wrote was the end title music. Very unusual for me. Yeah. I mean, even in Polar Bear, you know, there's a couple of chunky cues. That, yeah, I mean, there's got to be 60 minutes of music in that. So I, I'm used to, with, with Ridley, Tony, whoever it is, Antoine Foucault, any of the animations I've done, they're looking at cue list and thinking oof, upwards of 60, 70, 80 minutes of music sometimes. But on this occasion, you know, really wanted to play it mostly with songs. We tried scoring a couple of places. 
and some and a couple of those places worked and a couple of those didn't. So yeah, there was no no bad taste left in my mouth. It wasn't it wasn't a bad experience. It was actually was a hell of a lot of fun. I was great fun after after the last year. So different. Bring us up to pretty much up to contemporary times. And you know who doesn't like a Blondie song or a David Bowie song? Exactly. Don't really argue with that stuff. But... <laughs> Oh yeah, I think my score worked much better than that Blondie song. Uh, I don't know. Uh, no. So, so that's how the film was, and that's how it is. I always, I always like hearing more of your, of your music, but I'll, uh, I'll take Blondie and Bowie too. <laughs> All right, um, Harry. I think we've we've gone well over what you said we do, and right. you know, frankly, I wish I could keep you here for a while, but I appreciate you've got <laughs> stuff going on. So, thanks again so much for joining me. It was, it was really. Oh, a pleasure. You're welcome. Oh, it's great talking to you, man. All right. Thanks. You take care. Thanks. Bye.